Calling All Hunters. Welcome to episode seven of Supernatural Books, The Winchesters and Prose. I'm Lane. I'm Diane. And, and we made it, fam! Woohoo! Now we're not at the end of the book. I just wanted you guys to feel good about making it to this episode. <laughs> you stuck through it and we're proud of you. Yes. Uh, I wonder if we're at the halfway point. How many chapters does this thing have? <sighs> Too many? Oh, I'm going I'm to just see. I said, it says I'm at 38%. <laughs> but what about like when you're at the end of 10 okay so there's 18 chapters in an epilogue so we're we're reaching the halfway point fam we're getting there yes. we're getting there maybe something will happen probably not in these chapters i think it was another case of like last episode where we had one that was pretty decent and one that was like eh. and remember i feel like this one might have been slightly inverted maybe but yeah we're introduced to a brand new character again yeah. At least this new character is interesting, but that's that's coming up. We're now on chapter nine. Mm-hmm. And just for people to remember, last episode, they were leaving the bar where Scotzo, the band, had played to go drink at another bar because mm-hmm. it's like their little after party. Yes. So chapter nine starts on page 121. And as usual, I'll read a couple paragraphs to kind of get it started, and then we'll kind of synopsize and talk about the chapter as we go. And cry. It's, it's okay to cry. Yeah. <laughs> Just cry with us. Chapter 9, Shamrock Bar and Grill, Yonkers, New York, Saturday, 18 November 2006. Over the course of his life, Sam Winchester had had many occasions to ponder on the exact nature of hell. Raised more or less Christian, Dad was surprisingly devout, all things considered. Sam believed in God and in most things that your average white American Christian believed in. He didn't often make it to church on Sunday. The only times he entered a church these days was as part of an investigation for a hunt. But he prayed every day. And he'd read the Bible, both as a child and again when he was at Stanford, taking a comparative religion class as a theology elective. I can't help whenever I come across Stanford now, I think of Monster of the Week's Manford. (laughs) Damn it, Chris and Jeremy. (laughs) So yeah, he went to Smanford. But yeah, he goes on to say that the Bible isn't really particularly helpful on what hell is actually like. So was it a place? And he's thinking that, yes, because he and his brother deal with demons and they say that they come from hell. So he's assuming that it's a place. And there are people like restless spirits who can't move on. So where are they moving on to? So he's kind of using his and his brother's background in dealing with demons because at this point they haven't yet come across angels. They don't know that they exist. But he's kind of doing the, well, if A exists, then probably B exists also. Right. So because there are reapers, where are they reaping them to? Right. There's actually a lot of interesting stuff. There's a couple of pages where Sam contemplates hell in general and it eventually peters out into a dumb joke but uh the content during is very interesting he talks about the demon on the plane who had told him how jess was suffering in hell and the crossroad demon who said something's very similar about their dad he knew demons lied but there might have been some truth to it and it says sam hated the idea that jess was suffering in some weird nether realm just because and i quote she was stupid enough to fall in love with him which very problematic line i think it's guilt talking well i'm just gonna say like my my point is strike that reverse it because he was dumb enough to fall for her that she got pulled into this it's not the other way around she wasn't stupid for falling in love with sam i know he feels that way because he feels very guilty and all that kind of stuff but like to me, it was it, uh, it shows a lot of the like his toxic mindset at the time. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah, it it is kind of guilt, but it's also keeping his responsibility in it at an arm's length. 
she fell in love with me, not I'm not the one who took this action, so it's still kind of on her. Right. But I don't, I didn't deserve for her to have fallen in love with me. I get it. But, like, we all know the boys don't think always in a very healthy manner. Nah. So, um... They're flawed human beings, and that's why we relate to them. Yeah, he had taken, like, a comparative religion class and had learned a lot about, like, the different concepts of, like, yin and yang, and just, like, the fact, you know, if there's one, there has to be a correlating other... And he had said, it had best been expressed by uh, Arlo Guthrie. Mm -hmm. You can't have a light without a dark to stick it to. You can't have one thing without the other thing. Have you ever seen Legend? Mm -mm. Okay, I'm I'm (laughs) going to say something, and I don't want this to put you off of watching it. Tom Cruise is in it, but it was his, I believe, second movie. Oh, wait. Legend with the Demon? Prince of Darkness and the Unicorns. The movie. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. I thought we were talking about a show. That's why I was so confused. Oh, yeah. The movie with Tim Curry. Yeah, of course I've seen that. Okay. So it was... I always loved that bit at the end was, you know, what is... What is light without darkness? What is pleasure without pain? So this is kind of just... We've been contemplating this since humans could contemplate it. Yeah. So it's it's an ongoing dichotomy that humanity is always mulling over in their head yes. to find some kind of moral path. And some people don't quite understand that everyone has these thoughts. It's not based on just one religion or anything. Like when I... Like, I have a very religious co-worker, and when she found out that I was pagan, her first question was like, well, where do you get your morality from? And first of all, it's a very insulting thing to say. Yeah. You can believe what you want, but I have never understood the concept of morality through fear. Mm-hmm. You, you fear your God. You fear what the actions will be taken if you do something that doesn't work with the book that you're reading. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's fine. If that's what keeps you... Like, it's the Patton Oswalt joke. You know, I don't care if you believe in, like, a giant anus in the sky that, like, shits pies or whatever. It's like Or, like, the shit piranhas that keep you... Like, if you do anything bad. As long as you're a good person, I don't care what it takes for you to be a good person. Yeah. Just don't... Just don't be an asshole. Yeah. Don't put what you believe on other people and ask, well, since you don't believe in what I believe, how can you possibly be a good person? Dean really did hold on to a secret faith for quite a while. Sam held on to his all the way up till now. Like, it's a good insight to his head of where he's at emotionally, where he's at spiritually. And the boys try and keep a stoic face and they they normally make jokes at each other. So it's good to see a good insight of, I am really messed up over a lot of the stuff that's happened recently. Mm -hmm. And I am contemplating the dichotomy of good and evil and heaven and hell and trying to figure out what might be real and... Because it's it, the thought of it is hurting me. We've talked before about how novels and novelizations can get into a character's head. And you can't get this from the TV show. So it's a nice little glimpse at Sam thinking about the compelling evidence that he has for the existence of a hell. And kind of um, using that in the equation to kind of help restore his faith that there's a heaven. Yeah. So we have this deep conversation about what really truly is hell and it turns very quickly into or was it the old joke about how hell is other people yes i have technically died for a little bit and when i came back and had to deal with all the fallout and backlash of that 
I truly did believe that. And, like, if anyone remembers Buffy the Vampire Slayer, when she came back from heaven, she truly believed Earth was hell. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, because we went way off track. Yeah. Okay, we're back. So, Sam's talking about really deep stuff about heaven and hell and Jessica and his dad. And he asks Jean-Paul Sarté, who had embodied this in his play. God, I can't pronounce that. Oh, where is it? Huiclo? Um, Huiclo? It, Hugh is Kloss. Yeah, Hugh is Kloss. <laughs> in which uh, hell was three people stuck in a room together, which would definitely be hell to me. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> guess it depends on which other two people I'm with. I mean, eventually, even if it's someone you adore, eventually it's going to become hell. So, but basically, the whole point of these three or four pages of really deep conversation is just to make a dumb joke. Because it says, right here and right now, in the Shamrock Bar and Grill in Yonkers late Friday night or early Saturday morning, however you looked at it, Sam was coming around to Sarte's way of thinking that hell was being stuck between Janine, Melina, and Dean. Let's see how long it took to set up this joke. It started on page 121, all of 122, all of 123, and the top of page 124. Yeah, roughly four pages. Of what we thought was really interesting stuff, and oh, we're going to go somewhere pretty decent, and dumb joke. I have still a good ride. That's a mood. Like, I feel that on a spiritual level, I get it. Being stuck with people, especially between like, oh, horny. I'm going to consider her a teenager. I don't think she's in her 20s. Maybe just 20. Maybe. I'm hoping she's 21 just to be in a bar. But I don't know how many people actually care about that. But anyways, basically, he's the buffer for Dean between Janine, who Manfred has already warned people not to like go near because that's his cousin. But like, she's got the hots for him. And uh, they, they even make a joke. Like, she'll flirt with anything that moves. And Sam makes a joke about, gee, I wonder what that's like. pointedly looks at Dean. (laughs) So Aldo, he's the one who keeps getting their names wrong, correct? He's like, where the hell did you get a 68 Impala in such fine shape, Sam? Well, it's Dean and it's a 67. That's what I said. Anyhow, it looks fantastic. So it's kind of like a running thing with this character. He'll call them by the wrong name. and Yeah, that's the uh, guitar player. Yeah. Was it the one that was pretty decent? Like the one who had better... Yeah. He seems to be like the one well put together kind of character. Most likely based on someone the author knows. Yeah. Yeah, so... Since Janine can't get to Dean, Dean's talking to the guitar player. She is trying to, and like, I've got a hot brother. So I get where Sam's feeling this because it's always the girls can't get to the hot guy. So they're going to go to the accessible person. Because Janine's like, so like, what does your brother do? And what's he do for fun? And Sam... (laughs) Sam is, very, I'm feeling the Sam right now because he's got, he, here are his internal answers for Janine. Well, he likes to flirt with women who look a lot like you and pretend to be something really impressive and sexy so you can get into bed with them. He and I troll newspapers and the internet looking for supernatural phenomena so we can hunt them down, destroy them before they hurt people. And he hustles pool and plays poker, which are the two legal ways we make enough money to actually survive. Money that mostly goes into crappy hotels, crappy food, laundromats, and gas for the Impala. I would also like to state for the record, though, poker and, like, hustling for pool. Not always legal, depending on the state. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) He could have said those things and, like, just shot her down, but he just was like, "Uh, I don't know. He's too polite. Yeah, he said something lame, like, you know, you just ask him. 
So we had a good start, and now the rest of it is just like, so what's your brother do, and this and then the other. Yeah, so he like you could go ask him. It's like, oh, I don't want to interrupt. Besides, he's talking with Otto about cars, so not my thing. All I know about cars is if you turn the key, it starts, and you hit the brake, it stops. Eventually, she does make her way over to him and is like, so what do you do for fun? And he's like, fun. And it's very fun to mentally see Dean being uncomfortable around yeah. a girl. And Sam's like, yeah, Dean, fun. Three-letter word meaning enjoyment. And this is how you know it's 2006. Thank you, Ask Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is where, like, hey, Dean, is my niece bugging you? Oh, yeah. First cousin was removed. Yeah. Lane's gonna stick on that. Yep. <laughs> so, this is what was cracking me up that I thought was in the last chapter, because these chapters are very, very similar. Uh, letting out a dramatic breath, Janine said, you got a cell phone? And Dean's like, yeah. I'm thinking about getting a new one. Can I see what you got? And, like, my first thought, oh, dude, that's a fucking trap. <laughs> I don't know about this trap because I do not flirt and I don't understand flirting. And... I don't flirt, but I am really good. I will roll a nat 20 on checking for traps just about every time. Yeah. So yeah, she definitely puts her number into his phone and Sam basically thought the same thing of me. It's like, you didn't, you didn't, I can't believe you fell for that, dude. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe you fell for that. Let's just make a rule. It's like a true crime rule. Do not hand strangers your phone. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I wouldn't have given her my phone in the first place. So can I see your phone? Hold it. Here it is. Yeah. Put it back in my pocket. So after that, they leave the bar. They go back to Manfred's house. And they... Manfred freaks out because he sees them with the shotguns full of rock salt. And they have to explain to him. Like, I'm not I'm, I'm not going to patronize you guys with, like, we all know what rock salt does. He's just, like, they're just explaining it for exposition in the book. Yeah. Manfred at this point is, like, drunk and stoned. So, uh, and he doesn't know what dissipates means. He, well, I'm thinking maybe he knows when he's sober, but he definitely doesn't know now. Possibly. Manfred throws them the keys from the driveway to the porch. And he doesn't make it to the porch, obviously, because he throws pretty weak. And they go in, and everything's pretty quiet, and then the house starts rattling. Because remember, I know we've probably forgotten by now, there are two different hunts going on in this book. The first one is the, what nerds back then probably thought was a cool premise, but isn't cool now, the resurrecting of Poe, and the haunting at Manfred's house. Which is why they're in New York in the first place. I was kind of surprised at how strongly Manfred reacted to the ghost in his house because when he was first telling them about it, he just kind of seemed like it was just, yeah, it happens. It's just something that happens. But no, he's like... He wasn't going in. Yeah, he's not wanting to go in the house. So maybe he was putting it on for, like, to seem unbothered by it. Mm-hmm. But... He's really scared. He's actually really scared. And so, like, basically, they get inside, and the house starts shaking and rattling. And they even mention, like, you know, the metal frames were banging against the sheetrock. Like, that's how hard the house is shaking. And they're going through the house like a damn SWAT team, like they do. We've all seen it. And then... The EMF is gone, is lit up like a Christmas tree here's one of the things like where the author kind of fails a little bit where he over explains certain things and then fails to explain others because it just said still no physical manifestation of the spirit just the house shaking and and then it has like ah ha 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 like a million times but it doesn't give us an inflection i don't know if this is a maniacal laughter i don't know if this is a high-pitched scream kind of a laugh yeah or like a low like monotone laugh 
that's where like it kind of falters. I'm like, you spent 20 minutes discussing vinyl albums and what the hell an easy chair is. Yeah. And you're not going to give me two words about what kind of laughter this is so that I can put that in my head for a mental picture. You see, there's um, one ah. Uh, one, two, three. It's, it's a very long two line worth of pause. There are 32 haws. One ah, 32 haws. Yeah, and so there's still no physical manifestation, and then the cackling. So at least we know it's cackling. Still don't know what kind of cackling. I'm just going to say like a high-pitched witch hazel. That's what I got in my head. Yeah, cackling. because it started with the ah. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like a like a damn Halloween prop. Like motion. Dis- yeah. yeah. And then the voice starts chanting, which I, I don't know if that's the best use of that word. Yeah. Uh, chanting the words, love me over and over again. Because like to me, chanting is monotone. Love me. Love me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For me, it's like, I think maybe a constant screaming because it's, there is an exclamation point afterwards. I don't think chanting is the right word either. It's hard to get a good picture of what's going on. But finally, you hear like one last love me. Sam whirls around and saw the face of a woman with bottle blonde hair that was flying out in all directions and couldn't help but think it was a little ridiculous that the woman's spirit had a die job as well as a body. But no discernible arms or legs. So we're we're seeing a torso and a head with flowing crazy hair. I don't know if this is actually how the author is picturing it, but this is how it's written. That it's just like a flying torso and head. And I don't know how Sam can tell it's bottle blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, and she must be coming through with like really good saturation of color. But what we do know, like maybe maybe it's like like her roots are showing. Yeah, which but it doesn't seem any more or less ridiculous to me. How than... does Sam notice her roots though? When there's like a flying flying hair, flying head, torso combo. That's not what I'd personally be focusing on. But what, why is it ridiculous that her and the emphasis is spirit had a dye job? Well, but they, like, the, the spirits do... have clothing as well. I. I would think it's how the they they have shown that you look exactly how you did when you died or at least some semblance of it like if you died horribly gruesome you can come back whole but you still be cl- wearing the clothes you wore when you died mm-hmm. and i have heard uh, like some of the the supernatural not the tv show but the uh, the paranormal podcast i like to listen to it is a fairly common thing for it to be a, a partial apparition it's actually not it's actually more rare for it to be the full thing usually you get just legs or just the body down to the the hips or I've, something. I've never really seen it's normally though normally what you're seeing is the top and it normally starts to fade at the knee. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people make calls where they just see legs walking. Yeah. Which is kind of odd. There are usually arms with it. That's what's yeah. throwing me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if like maybe there's like a mist around it. It's not it's frustrating to me where the stuff is supposed to be important is where the author stops describing it. Yeah. And that's hard because in every chap every chapter there is mention of how parking sucks and there's street names and other stupid crap like that, but you're not gonna tell me what the ghost is like or what her inflections are. This line also kind of lends doubt to like how he could know it was a bottle job. It says her entire form was also transparent, which wasn't true of all spirits, but this one barely had any substance. So I'm picturing very faint. Yeah, like an imprint maybe. It says plenty of spirits, especially angry ones, could manifest physically, but this woman seemed to focus most of her ectoplasmic energy on laughing and wanting to be loved. Mood. I mean, I, I could Maybe like, when it's explained later of who this person is, that'll make more sense, but yeah. it just doesn't... I do like the seems... idea that her form is faint because all of her energy is going into being audible and moving things. Yeah, like, I can see that, but the shaking of the house itself is violent. Yeah. So how is she not 
I don't know. It just, it doesn't match well. And this is where Manfred gets kind of weird and douchey. Let's talk first about this, uh, the t-shirt this ghost is wearing. She's wearing a, was it Queensryche? Yeah, yeah. Queensryche. So it's Which some, is the band. Yeah. That will probably come up later. I just want, so I just want to point that out. And Sam makes fun of the name because there's an umlaut over the Y. I really do think the author just wanted to use the word umlaut so that people know Sam knows what that is. Mm-hmm. Because remember, guys, Sam is smart. He went to college. But the, yeah, Manfred gets, like, he doesn't act weird, but he just acts like he does. All of a sudden, he no longer gives a fuck. And, like, women are dispensable to him. And I, I, I majorly checked out on this character after after this. Because basically... I think he killed this woman. If he didn't kill her, I think he did something really dickish to her. And she ended up dying because of it. Mm-hmm. And, like, maybe he was too drunk or high to go get help or something. I don't know. But I do feel like he is related to this. And, like, he does consider women dispensable creatures, which... Fuck that. But the ghost dissipates with one last love me. So it's, like, fading... Like, love me, love me. Like that kind of bullshit. You know, just to make sure we know it's all spooky, there is definitely like a fade out. Speaking of cries for love, we forgot to put our, our Twitter and email information. We're not gonna, we're not gonna beg for your love. We we just like that you listen. Love us, please. No, it's, it's, we love ourselves enough that as long as you're listening, we don't care. <laughs> we love you for loving us yes just we, we would listening. love to have some we interaction love you for listening so you don't have to love us <laughs> we love you for being you okay moving on so man from goes to smoke a joint they said like the ghost is gone he sneak he's kind of like are you sure it's safe going into the house and they said yeah but she'll probably be back tomorrow night but it's good for now yeah he starts to i couldn't get over this pulling out a ziploc bag full of green leaves in a yellow box i was like just i don't know i was picturing like maple leaves (laughs) just just leaves oregano but sam's like actually they actually start asking him and it just seems like he doesn't care about who the person is yeah because he said like sam and dean uh both sat on the couch perpendicular to him in a gentle voice sam said i'm sorry manfred but we need to ask you a few questions what now manfred didn't look up well we actually saw it at that manfred looked up really whoa it was a girl blonde hair died sam added right died kind of hook nose wearing a queen's shirt ringing any bells maybe manfred anything please for the love of god help us out mm-hmm. and manfred shrugged and said you know how many women in reich shirts i see all the time First of all, how many? Yeah. Really? How many? You're like a, I'm going to call you 75 now. You're a 75 year old burnout who isn't very good at making music. It plays in the same dive bar. You have like a couple, a handful of groupies, one of which is your own cousin. How many? Seriously. Mm hmm. But uh, Dean asks, do you ever take any of them home? And Manfred just says, maybe. And shrugs. Like, it's just like all of a sudden you can't give a fuck anymore about the ghost you've been freaking out over. Like, to the point where Ash had to bring someone to New York City to help you out. Yeah. And he continues, honestly, I I took lots of women home from the park and rear, from other places. Christ, I can't even remember last week. You expect me to remember that? And then he uh, offers them a drag on his joint. Sam's like, "Uh, no thanks. We actually have some stuff we got to take care of tonight. Yeah. Manfred takes a shot about, oh, I thought you were just staying there to blow off Janine. And it's like, no, we're, we're going to go. He said, I thought you were going to blow off Janine. And Dean's like, uh, about that. And Manfred says, don't worry about it, Dean. She flirts with anything that moves. If you show up again tomorrow night, she'll hit on you all over again. And if you don't show up, she'll forget all about you. Which kind of sounds like Dean. Yeah, and Sam was even like, gee, we don't know anyone like <laughs> that, do we, Dean? So it's just kind of like his reaction to it is a little weird. Maybe it's just because he's a stoner. Maybe not. I just... 
he becomes less likable as it like Lane's not liked him the whole time. We understand this, but he is very much becoming less likable as the story goes along. Yeah, they just mm. they go out to the Apollo, and so they're gonna go check out. Uh, they had talked about it earlier. They're the house check, on the web. Yeah, they were going to check out the house where the guy had gotten bricked up into it to see if just maybe the cops missed something. Because, you know, they're not looking for ritualistic stuff. They're yeah. looking for, like, an actual crime. And Dean has also been fighting doing this job this whole time because Dean's like, it's just a psychopath serial killer. Mm-hmm. The ritual's not real, so we shouldn't even be here. And just and- in case you're you're worried... We do get back to talking about parking on the bottom of page 141. In case you guys were worried about the state of parking in New York City, they do discuss it once again. (laughs) Like, I know you guys were so worried that the boys couldn't find a parking spot on their giant beloved boat of a car. Dean says, look around, Sammy. Most of these are apartment buildings and I ain't seen too many parking lots. This time of night, everyone's at home asleep, which means their cars are parked. Screw it. Just double park. Sam frowned. Isn't that illegal? No, I will give this to Sam because here's the thing. Dean is wanted by the FBI. Mm -hmm. Most most serial killers, most they get caught on stupid shit. This is true. Son of Sam, parking ticket. You get mobsters with RICO charges for not paying their taxes. Uh You don't get them for all the shady shit they've really done. (laughs) So, like, I get where Sam's coming from. I'm sure that's not how the author was trying to portray him. I think it was more of a, you know, illegal kind of like stick in the mud Sam wine but I, I also don't think... It's smart. I don't feel like Dean would want Baby double parked. But also, once again, Sam is driving. I know, but I don't think Dean would let him double park. Like, he's the one pushing for double parking. Yeah. But I just see him, like, being worried about a car driving by and putting a scratch on Baby. I'm just going to say that this is just because it's, like, you know, after season one and two. Is this season two? Uh, yeah, this so is season two. season two. And so, like... His obsession maybe isn't as prominent. I feel like it was really prominent in season one. At this point, we're just like, whatever, moving I mean, on. I haven't said anything else about his about Sammy's arm being at a cast either. So. You know, they, he does spend a good page talking about looking for parking, discussing whether or not to double park. And then on top of that, they go around the block to look at a parking garage, which is, of course, full. So they're just like, fuck it, we'll double park. And it's just like, okay, we don't need this. This is why they don't have this in the show. Because we're not going to watch 10 minutes of them circling a block arguing about parking. That's the stuff they cut out of the show for a reason. So then they uh, do the one-way street shuffle once again to get back to the house. And then Sam gets the idea that the house has a driveway next to it that was gated and locked. But it was just wide enough where they can kind of parallel park the Impala in the driveway. Yeah, and Dean, even to the point, like, finally starts acting Dean where he's like, I'm driving back because Sam trying to parallel park baby was just too much for Dean to take. Which, again, why? Why is Sam driving? Why? Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh... Because we know traffic is better. Just whatever. (laughs) So, uh... So, basically, they they, uh, get out of the car, and they go to the side door of the house, and Dean's trying to pick the lock. Um, Suddenly, a light shone right in Sam's face. Looking down the driveway at the source, he saw a dark figure who appeared to be holding a gun in addition to a flashlight. And the chapter ends with... Freeze, police. It was interesting. It, they added that Dean pushed the gate open quickly, something that hit Dad had taught them that metal gates made more noise if you open them slowly, which I could see that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, if you try, like, that's definitely... Like, just, yeah. just, yeah. So... Just, just, okay, just... 
For anyone who's trying to break into anything, which I don't suggest you do because that's terrible and illegal, uh, you have to act normal and just rip the damn bandaid off when you're opening like a like a gate. Mm-hmm. Because it's going to look more suspicious and sound more suspicious if you're doing the slow, like, oh, I'm so sneaky. Yeah. <sighs> so that's the end of chapter nine. We'll be moving on to chapter ten, um, which doesn't start where it left off with the freeze police. Um, it starts from the perspective of Detective Marina McBain, mm-hmm. who... It starts at the 50th precinct in the Bronx. Yeah, I'll get it started. Yeah, please. Okay, so chapter 10 starts on page 146. 50th precinct, the Bronx, New York, Saturday, 18 November, 2006. It had been several years since Detective Marina McBain had been up to the 5-0 in the Bronx. Like most of the New York Police Department precinct houses, the 50th precinct in the Bronx was a boxy white edifice with few windows and an American flag atop it flapping from a pole. McBain drove her Saturn, her own car rather than a departmental one, as technically she was off-duty right now, up Broadway after getting off the Major Deegan at the West 230th Street exit. Oh, here we go again. (laughs) She turned left at West 236, which had been renamed after Officer Vincent Guidici, a member who died in the line of duty a decade earlier. In fact, her last trip up had been at the renaming ceremony for the street back in 1999. While an interesting fact, who cares? Seriously, who cares? Oh, and she started looking for a parking spot. Yay, parking. Yeah, in case anyone was worried about her parking her Saturn, she finds parking. Jesus Christ. (laughs) You can't can't with the parking. It's so stupid. And it takes up so much paper. (laughs) Officer McBain, they've shifted perspective to her for a minute. And so she's talking to a sergeant in there. And they make a note of pointing out that he looks at her kind of weird because, first of all, she's a black female. He doesn't start giving her any kind of like credibility or any kind of actual attention until he notices the shield on her belt. Yeah. Kind of dismissed her as black, black female, but then noticed the shield. He's like, oh, okay, now you're, you're one of us. So yeah, it says... Then he saw the gold shield on her belt. Only then did he set the paper down and change his expression to one of genuine interest. As now she wasn't a black female at all, but a member. And, like, I will say that, like, that, you know, everyone talks about the blue line. But, like, if you're a member, you're a member. Yeah. There's a reason that if you kill a cop, you you might get your ass kicked by other cops. Yeah, it's just, like, like any club or any family or any kind of group like that. It's just, like, it's a pack. Mm-hmm. You stop being other when you, once you wear that shield. Yeah. Though it doesn't mean that there isn't friendly fire sometimes if the guys are off duty. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Um, so this guy's name is O'Shaughnessy. Because why not? Yeah. You gotta have an Irish cop in New York City. <laughs> She's ch- trying to like endear herself to him by talking about uh, baseball. And... Uh, She's like a... But you didn't survive in the testosterone-laden NYPD without being able to hold your own in any conversation about the Yankees, Mets, Knicks, Nets, Giants, or Jets. The Rangers, Devils, and Islanders were optional, which was good as McBain drew the line of hockey. I'm sure everyone's like, why are we talking about this stupid cop? Um, This is where it starts to actually play into the book and get interesting. She says, uh, my name's McBain. I'm with MPU, which is the Missing Persons Unit. You guys get any calls the last couple days for a 1031 at 2739 West 
195th Street. She asked using the code for a burglary in progress. So basically, if you guys don't remember, because the authors said so many streets in like so many different pages, um, that is where the boys are right now. Mm-hmm. Where, where the person was bricked up. Right, and even even the uh, officer O'Shaughnessy is just like, since when does missing persons give a fuck about a burglary in process? You know, she very much plays it off as like, oh, you know, my boss has my ass. Like, she uses the stuff that cops do to endear themselves to one another. Yeah. And it's a very it's a very common uh, grifter type of tool where it's just like common complaints is a good way to get in with someone and bond yeah. with them. We're all in the ranks together and we have superiors riding our asses together. It's like everyone, almost everyone complains about the same shit. Yeah. So he checks and he says, no, there's nothing there since that homicide back on 7th. And she's like, okay. And it says like in the the narrative, it had been a long shot, but she was just so sure. And at that moment, the dispatcher's voice says, uh, 911 call 1031 at, and he gives, he gives the address to that street. And she says, knew I could count on the boys. Yeah. So Shaughnessy is kind of like, you know, how the hell did you know that? And, and she's guess. like, just a guess. And so she basically... So we can tell from this, maybe she knows the boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been expecting them ever since. Which is weird, because I do feel like a lot of people haven't made that connection. But maybe she has. Maybe she's one of those uh keeps the um, radio on and is running the scanners, listening. Yeah. O'Shaughnessy tries to send back up with her, but she manages to kind of t- talk him out of that. And I think it's like... Uh, if you if I don't call you within twenty minutes, then you can send back up. But O'Shaughnessy is a good cop. <clears throat> yeah, he is doing his job correctly. He is making sure that no one goes out without backup. Like he does eventually, like just say you know fuck it, just do what you want, and you know. But like it, it's still with the assurance of, hey, if you don't call in twenty minutes, we're coming after yeah, you. Yeah, if I let you out without backup, he'll have my ass. Yeah. So like. He's, he's doing his job, not 100% by the book, but yeah. he's doing it right. Yeah, so he says, I'll, I'll send one of my guys over in 20 minutes if I ain't heard from you. So, so that gives her some time to work with. Yeah, and it said it didn't take, because we got to talk about driving again. Mm-hmm. It didn't take long to drive to the corner of Webb and 195th Street, and it took even less time to find an illegally parked 1967 Chevy Impala. It's like, and she's like, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so she double parks her car. Right next to their car because you need to you need to know where they're parked. Yes, you just got to know because that's so important. Um, so she is the one on the other end of freeze police. Mm-hmm. So um, she's mostly doing this for whoever called the nine one one dispatch operator. And so basically, once she does that, uh. She says, like, Sam starts trying to talk out of it. It's like, officer, I can explain. And she's like, it's detective, and don't even try to explain it, Sam, because I have no tolerance for Winchester brand bull. Mm-hmm. So, so both of them kind of start, you know, opening and closing their mouths, kind of like fish. And she's like, yeah, I know who you are, Sam and Dean Winchester, the only sons of John Winchester, a man who, unlike his dumbass sons, knows to call me whenever he's in town. So the boys don't know her, but she knows their father, and through that, 
can put two and two together that these are his kids. Yeah, and, like, he's... Jean even says, you knew our father, and she kind of, like, frowns at the past tense because she had heard the rumors but wasn't entirely sure that John was actually dead. So they do confirm that. Um, And so Dean continues to, like, finish breaking into the house, which he'd actually had some difficulty with, which I found funny. And... Here's what kind of weirded me out, because, like, I've never seen the boys forget to do this, but I could just be glossing it over in my head, where it was, uh... Dean is being very defensive, because she's going... She's already told him, like, I'm going in with you guys. And he's like, no, you're not. And she... He's like, lady, I don't even know who you are. And she smiled sweetly. Let me give you a clue, brushy top. Which... Okay. <laughs> I'm the only person standing between you and a couple of uniforms from the 5-0 busting your asses. Running your face and prints through the system, turning up a federal warrant for your arrest, and locking you up both up for the rest of your natural lives. Yeah, don't call a police detective lady. Yeah, that's not... That is officer or detective to you. Yeah. And Dean bowed his head slightly and indicated to the door after you. Suddenly you found chivalry, she asked. And he's like, nah, you just got the flashlight. And th- that, to me, doesn't make sense. You're going to break in in the middle of the night, you didn't bring flashlights? Huh. They're so pretty. <laughs> They're just so pretty. <laughs> At least they got that going for them. She definitely goes first, and they kind of do a back and forth about like what she knows about the case. Like, McBain is actually a fairly well-rounded and interesting character. Mm-hmm. She uh, has helped out John in the past. He's made sure to call her whenever he's in town to cover his ass. And uh, so it's just... And, and they do talk about it later on. And it is very interesting how... Like, we'll jump forward a little bit and then go back. Where there is a very small collection of these officers who not only know about hunters. They're not quite hunters themselves. But they do look out for hunters, and it does give a good layer to the universe of, you know, it, there's not like a men in black agency yet. And they kind of know when something's going on that, okay, this is something that's not on our level. We need to get a hold of well, a hunter. Well, not only that, but the ones they are talking about, there's like a, there's an Asian cop, there's a lot of female, like Sam makes a note, why is it like really only female cops? And like she does say, the people who notice this shit are the people on the fringe. Yeah, which kind of follows along with, we've got Jody, who's not been introduced yet. I don't think she is in that world yet, as of season two. And um, I think they're more open to seeing things from a different perspective. Because, um, you know, there is a lot of flack if you're like a female officer or, you know, officer of color or anything like that. So I think they're more open to different stuff. Yeah, I can buy into that logic. Because the other cop that we know of right away who eventually learned about them was that agent who was tracking down Dean. Hendricks. Hendricks. Hendricks or Hendrickson? One of the two. And again, he's another character that was killed off way too early because he had just kind of said, you know what? I think we can, I think we can help each other out. I think we can, we got something going here. But anyway, um. Uh, Yeah, so... Let's go back and talk about, they talk about uh, Ray's, the Vic, who was in, he died of suffocation. It says, in one way you could have told there was a body in there, in one way you could have told there was a body in there was that inside some of the otherwise brand speaking new bricks had uh, scratch marks on them, but all the bricks were taken to the lab for like DNA testing. Mm -hmm. And they, they do find herbs. 
Because Sam looked up at her. Did the crime scene report indicate any herbs laying around? Dean held up a small piece of greenery between thumb and forefinger. I hope she didn't cook with this because uh, the previous tenant was a gourmet chef. So the officer was like, no, but the, you know, because she was a gourmet chef, I'm sure there's herbs lying around and, in, yeah, this is in the basement of all places. Yeah. And he's like, no, this is wormwood. I hope to God she never cooked with this. Yeah, and we know that wormwood showed up at the scene of the orangutan attack. Yeah, so it is part... That's where I got torchwood yeah. and wormwood mixed up. Sam, he, he says it's also used in resurrection rituals, which is what this is. And so they're kind of letting her on information. She's letting them in on information. There's a good information exchange going on. Yeah. So she said there's four in the group. Me, a woman in Chicago named Murphy, a guy in Eugene, Oregon named Lau... And the fourth was Detective Ballard in Baltimore, who she was played by the lady from The Exorcist. Okay, yeah, I remember her. And she was the one who was fucking her partner, and her partner ended up killing a girl who turned into a ghost. Yeah. So um, she's, you know, the cop even like kind of gives us more information, because she did let Sam and Dean go. Yeah. And so uh, Detective He's Ballard is suspended pending an internal investigation. That's what IID means. And, you know, even if she comes out okay, she's definitely not going to be in homicide anymore. So she did derail her career for the Winchesters. Yeah. And there was another one down in Mississippi, but she died in Katrina. Yeah. And she even says, like, the spooky stuff's quintupled lately, getting harder to keep a lid on it. And, gee, Sam and Dean, why is all the spooky shit quintupled? Mm -hmm. I wonder. Did you guys do something stupid, I think? (laughs) So we got to... We already talked about the people being on the fringe being the one. So Dean explains that it's a fake ritual that some jackass in the 19th century made up. And, you know, Sam's still arguing. He's like, well, you know, obviously someone thinks it's real. Yeah. So McBain asks, so this ain't just some fetish thing. Someone's trying to, what, resurrect Edgar Allan Poe? And Dean says, that's what it looks like. Which... (sighs) I can't believe we're talking about this. Yeah. Look, I like Poe just as well as the next weird goth kid, but, like, I don't think I'd want to talk to him in real life. He was kind of... kind of a creep. Yeah. Like, you know, he had his good points, like, just like everyone else, but, you know, he's got got that weird fetish for his cousin, and... (laughs) Uh, Sam asked the detective, you know, how did you know that we'd be here? And she said, well, I didn't know for sure until I talked out the 5-0... Because this house is in their precinct. She said that she'd been keeping an eye on the whole Poe thing from the get-go. And this whole bricked-up thing screamed both the cast of Amontillado and Ritual Nonsense to me. So I figured a hunter or three might show up. And I thought it even more after the orangutan. Nobody here has put it together yet, but the two murders are different precincts, and not everybody's all that well-read. I mean, in Montiato, everyone knows that one, but murders on the Rue Morgue ain't taught in most English classes, and most cops don't even remember their English classes. And then the 5-2 got a call from the Bronx Zoo security about two guys, a tall one and a short one, which Dean is not short, claiming to be from the National Geographic, but not really being very convincing. (laughs) So, that's kind of funny. Way to go, guys. Yeah. A plus on your costumes. One tall one, one short one. No, it's like one tall one and one taller one. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. And then she said, like, there aren't too many hunters that travel to pair, and 
None of the ones that I do know match your description, so I figured it was you two. So McBain's wicked smart. McBain, yeah. Yeah, she's she's figured she's figured all this shit out and figured out who was showing up. More she's she's put more together in like five minutes than the boys have put together for most of the book. Yeah. Girls getting shit done. <laughs> <laughs> and uh saying that well what would you have done if we were just normal burglars and McBain shrugged and said, busted you. And the five I was going to send back if they didn't hear from me in 20. Trust me, after 10 years of this, I've gotten real good at covering my ass. See, you guys can just leave town. Me, I got to stay and clean up. So, yeah, I like her. It's like, she's even, she's even said she's following the phases of the moon. That's how she had the idea of it being a ritual. Like, you know, she'd make a pretty damn good hunter, but she wants to stay where she's at with the missing persons unit, which good for her. Yeah. So Dean has checked the M. EMF meter, and there's nothing there. And he's starting to think that, you know, there's nothing else to find there, so he's talking about leaving. And McBain asks, do you think this is part of a ritual? I'm assuming there's more to it, and the next piece is gonna be Monday. And the boys are like, um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where he said she was already following that. But, yeah, she's offering to help because she she does know that there's two locations that it could be at. And uh, she's like, well, I can go to one and you guys can go to the other. And Dean kind of like balks at this and is like, well, I don't even know if you actually know my dad. And so she like kind of uh, describes John and a lot of stuff they know about him. And uh, he's been to New York City on three separate occasions. Once to hunt a golem in Brighton Beach. Once to deal with a haunting on the subway. And they make a joke about the phantom subway conductor, which is an urban legend. And... (laughs) Uh, the third one, and this is kind of like where, sorry, and this is kind of where things get uh, continuity messed up a little bit because uh, the la- the third one was he slew a dragon in Chinatown. And if anyone remembers way later on, like I'm sure this is like, they didn't even think about this at this time, but later on in the show... There is an episode about dragons and uh, freaking out about how, oh my god, I didn't know dragons existed, mm-hmm. and this, that, and the other, and Bobby trying to help them out, and and Dean going like, well, don't you have any information or help? And like Bobby's like, this is in fucking Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah. So, there was that, that kind of stuck out to me, because, you know, dragons. Because <laughs> <laughs> we now know there's no way their dad killed a dragon, because... I doubt he had whatever sword you needed and yeah. like all that extra shit. Yeah. So, so, but this is before they figured out that they... So this is a slight continuity. This might have been a little bit of hand of the author, because we already know he likes yeah. dragons. It's a slight dragon. hiccup, Yeah, for it's, sure. it's fine. We'll, we'll let it pass. Yeah, it's just like, to me, it was more of like, it reminded me of Bobby, and so I laughed. I also loved when uh, Dean was trying to pull the sword from the rock. He's like, oh, it's really in there, isn't it? <laughs> um... So the boys kind of admit, yeah, that that does kind of sound like our dad. So McBain gives them her business cards and says that her cell's on there. So you need to meet. You need to call me on that one because if you rec- if you call to the uh, the police station, there's going to be a record of it. So right. the cell is her personal phone, so it's safer. Yeah, and Dean's even like, you know, she's even said it's like you two need to be careful. I covered you this time, but it ain't going to be easy, especially if you're going to go pulling felonies on me. You know, like, double parking and breaking an elevator. Yeah. Dean's like, we can handle the cops. And then she kind of slaps back with, this ain't no red state sheriff's office, brushy top. We're talking to NYPD. And we're talking a federal warrant for multiple homicides. 
I know you hunter types like living on the edge, but right now that edge is pointed right at your balls. You feel me? She's coming out swinging and she is not putting up with their shit. And I hope to God she doesn't, she doesn't pull like what they do in the show and die at the end of this. Cause like, she's, she's a good character. She's a good solid character. I, I very much like her. It's like, we have one redeeming character and I love her. So she gets back in her Saturn and drives off heading toward Kingsbridge road. Cause we have to know this officer is just like, this author is just like, he's obsessed with cars and driving and parking and it's just like i can't i just can't so that would get her back to the triborough and back to her queen's apartment where she'd get all two hours sleep before having to head into one police plaza to report for her shift tomorrow which that sucks if i get less than four hours sleep i'm not functioning well she'll be fine she's she's tough she'll be fine i'm a wimp i can do four hours of sleep one night if i do that two nights in a row yeah mm -mm. And she even says to herself, which, like, we don't really need this information, but I guess it's good to know. She's on a Wednesday to Sunday rotation, um, which means she's going to be able to help Winchester's on Monday. And she says to herself, if we're lucky, we'll stop another poor bastard from getting killed. That's how they end the chapter. And so this was more of like a... We're at least getting more stuff. Mm-hmm. We got a new... This, these two chapters, we got, you know, the haunting... Which, uh, I could take a leave. But, you know, at least we got information on it and information on the ghost. And I think and Manfred has something to do with that haunting. So if it gets him, yeah, I'm, I'm for it. And she's, McBain is by far... She's the best character in the book. Yeah. By far the most interesting secondary character. Yeah. And so, like, at least we got one. I'm gonna call it... I'll just call it a win at that. Things are getting better. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't have a constant urge to drink this... This one, I think the less time we spend with Manfred, the better. (laughs) Probably. Even just being around Manfred seems to lower the caliber of the boys' characters. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... Things are starting to happen. I'm hoping this kind of continues with some momentum because that to me is better than like the very slow setup. Like I still feel like this is going to probably be a very disappointing ending. Possibly. And if McBain dies over something as stupid as resurrecting Edgar Allan Poe from the grave, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. But I guess it'll be interesting to see what... Like, okay, I will say, like, the Poe thing is dumb, but also Warehouse 13 did it and did it better, so... Yeah. And like we said, this is, what, 2005, 2006... It's supposed to, yeah, it's supposed to be 2006, and so we're giving it more credit because of the time period... And everyone goes through a Poe phase. It's, it's Yeah, fine. but for me, it's... I think the author is trying too hard. I think he's trying too hard because this is his first... He has to be the flagship of the Supernatural books. Mm-hmm. So I get it. I get it, dude. I'm not even mad at you. Like, honestly... It's a lot of pressure. You're not a terrible author. Like, to me, this is... I'm going to chalk it up to trying to convert an established... Establish characters from, in like, a show perspective to a book perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hard things, but the feelings that the author have that I cannot forgive are over-explaining shit that doesn't need to be explained and under-explaining shit that does. Yeah. That's where it gets hard for me to, like, be a little more forgiving because I want to like the book. I love hating the book. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. I love hating it. But... 
I do want to like the book. Yeah. And it's hard to do that when you've talked about parking to the point of where the book should just be called Parking. And Supernatural Parking. <laughs> and, uh, but you've, you've not given us enough on the ghost. You've not, you've barely really talked about the crimes. You've taken us to wrong places for it. We've spent more time in grungy bars listening to bad music in grungy houses listening to bad music and on the road most likely listening to bad music and just like finding parking for 20 hours and talking about streets in New York City that I don't care. Like I, the only people who are going to get that are native New Yorkers and they don't care. So <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. The streets don't matter. Like I get what you're trying to do. It's not working. Tell me how the ghost was laughing. Give me more description of what she looks like. So I did like him, uh, the phrase, the one street shuffle back. That's all he needed to say. I know even just in Columbus, you think, oh, I'll turn on this way. Oh, it's a one-way street. Oh, shit, the lane I'm driving in is suddenly a parking lane. Um, so every yeah. city of size has like that. So he could have just said something like that and not gone through like every street name like and he tends me, to do. That's the problem. It's like you'll see lines like that in between. And I am, as a writer, I get it because I, you know, I send a letter or an email to somebody. If it's not within my actual like fiction, I am terrible at over explaining and going back and like saying shit that's just you don't need. You don't need to say. You don't need to do. And so I get that from that perspective. But when you have the concise term and then you keep going, it is annoying. Yeah. So, like, I understand that it's annoying. I do it. But, you know, it's harder. It's harder when it's just like, I could forgive it more if you did it with everything, I guess. If you're going to explain to me what an easy chair is and every vinyl album in Manfred's fucking house, but you're not going to explain to me, you know, a little more about maybe the villain or... You're going to take me to Poe's cottage and not tell me what's in it. Yeah. Or anything that was painful. helpful. You're going to drive us by the house where the guy was bricked up, but can't find a parking spot, so we're going to go really, home. Like, you, you show the house later and explain it better later, but it's just like, I don't get the motivation. Like, yeah. I don't know if it's just trying to be mysterious, but it's like, it's more just being annoying. But it's, it's getting there. It's, it's getting better. Yeah. I'm so grateful that it is getting better. Because for a while, I did think this book was a lost cause. And so there is, like, I actually was able to have those visual moments in my head for a little bit. I was actually able to read into stuff and start thinking about it, on, like, from my from a reader's perspective. And you didn't fall asleep and drop the Kindle in your face. I did time. not drop the Kindle on my face this time. And I'm pretty damn proud of that. <laughs> and I'm going to give it up to Officer McPayne for that because... Can we just, like, kill off Manfred or something? Like, I'm hoping he goes away for life I'm for so murdering. I'm tired of his character. He, I, think he's, I think he murdered this ghost. I'm tired of his character and every character around him. I have a feeling that the suspect they have for the, uh, the Poe murders, I think that's a red herring. I uh, think I'm not going to give him that much credit. I th <laughs> <laughs> this is true. It's true. I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm going to... I'm going to guess that it's going to be someone that we've met, but that we didn't see coming. No. The only thing I'm going to give is I think Arlo, the guitar player, has something to do with the ghost in Manfred's house. Mm -hmm. 
Just because for some reason, I don't know if it's the author's doing, and if so, kudos, but he just sticks out to me. Yeah. He's different. He doesn't act the same. Uh, he's the only he, one who doesn't, like, drink or smoke. Yeah, he's he's actually got talent. He's just, he. why is he hanging out with these people? Mm-hmm. And I just, something about him is different. Something seems a little off about him, so I, I, I might say he's got something to do with it. Yeah. I think the best thing the author could do, and I don't see it happening, and I don't see it, because at this point it's too late to merge the two, would be that Arlo is responsible for both. Mm-hmm. But they've already said, like, you know, this is going to be like a Poe thing. Like, it would have been cooler if the Poe thing was a red herring. Yeah. And it was, like, some kind of weird ritualistic serial killer thing. Which it still technically could be. I'm not going to give it that much credit. I wonder where they... Okay, so they said where they found the ritual. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to see. It's not going to work. Like, I'm trying to put it together in my head. I'm like, it wouldn't work. It'd be cool if, like, they tied in together somehow, but they're too different. I'm thinking the ritual might end up being valid. I don't know. It'd be interesting if she was the first victim and not... But, like... The location doesn't match up. It just... That whole thing seemed off, so I think it's two separate things. Yeah. It would have be... been good. Yeah. But, uh... And I'm sure the author, like, if he heard it, no, he's like, God, I should have thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's just trying... He's trying to do his thing. And this was, like, a bajillion years ago. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, that's my prediction, is that the, the ritual will end up being a valid prediction. Yeah, and it is pretty extra. And so, like, but this is a... This is a time period... Of extra. Before that was even a phrase. Oh, every time period has its extra. Like, let's put it into perspective. This is probably around the same time of Cruel Intentions. Mm-hmm. Which is so over the top. <laughs> so, yeah, those are kind of our thoughts right now. What what we wish for and what we, what we know is probably going to happen are two different things. But I think we were very hashtag blessed this time around. <laughs> because, you know, I didn't want to, like, gouge my eyes out. Yeah, it was actually almost enjoyable to read those chapters. Except for Manfred. Yeah. I hate him. He's going down. You just want that. Yeah. I want that for you. Thank you. I do want that for you. I feel validated. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I personally <coughs> don't care one or the other, because I know he probably won't, because it's supposed to be Ash's friend, but I do want that for you. I'd like you to have that satisfaction. I personally would find it slightly satisfying as well. We'll see. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, next episode, we will be doing chapters 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. Want to give them our Twitter and email? Yeah. Our Twitter is Impala Books. On Twitter. Mm-hmm. Please follow. Follow, like, and subscribe. <laughs> yes. Send comments. We'd love to interact with you. We'd love to you. hear from you. It'd be great. Yes. Um, and our email is supernaturalpros, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, you can email us anytime. Uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we get it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we really appreciate everyone listening. And hopefully we hear from you guys. Yeah. And if, if not, we'll see you next time. <laughs> All right. Bye, folks.